Jedi is not the last LiDAR mission, it's just the next one. And so even if it never comes back, there will be another LiDAR mission without a doubt. Hi, I'm Stephanie Tumampos and you're listening to Down to Earth, the show where we talk to incredible geoscientists about their science and its impacts on our planet. This season, we're exploring stories of resilience, hope, and scientific insight into climate change. Today, we're learning about the incredible LiDAR technology JEDI. This technology took almost 20 years to come to fruition, but has completely revolutionized our ability to understand the role forests play in the carbon cycle. This episode of Down to Earth is brought to you by the Remote Sensing Environment Analysis and Climate Technologies, or REACT Technical Committee of the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. The REACT Technical Committee is a collaborative and supportive venue for all scientists and engineers looking to exchange ideas and share knowledge that advances our efforts to tackle climate change. To learn more and be part of this incredible cutting-edge community, visit grss-ieee.org and select the REACT Technical Committee. So forested ecosystems, first of all, represent the largest terrestrial carbon sink. That is, the places where carbon comes out of the atmosphere and is stored on the land. This is Dr. Ralph Dubaya. He's a professor in geographical sciences at the University of Maryland at College Park. He's also a remote sensing scientist with a specialization in observation of forest structure globally using satellites. The main unknown is we don't know what the current carbon stocks are of the Earth's forests. So we could use a sensor like Landsat and say there's a forest here and there's not a forest here, but we don't know how much carbon has been accumulated. And the main reason we don't know the answer to it is because we've been missing the third dimension of forests. We don't know how tall the forests are. We don't know their structure globally. That is the main limitation that we have for understanding this problem better. Thankfully, technology has come a long way since Rolf started studying forests. And with the capabilities of JEDI, a technology developed under Ralph's guidance, we are finally starting to get a much deeper understanding of how forests hold and release carbon as part of the global carbon cycle. Let's learn more. We know when we cut down trees, and for example, they burn and the like, those represent potential sources of carbon that can get eventually into the atmosphere as atmospheric CO2. And something like in excess of 200 million hectares of forest have been lost through deforestation from about 2000 to 2020. That's a huge amount of land. That's almost the size of Argentina, probably 10 times the size of the United Kingdom, maybe three times the size of Germany that, that you're in. It's this enormous amount of deforestation that's happening. What's even more disturbing now is that recent studies seem to suggest that carbon loss from degradation of forests, so this is forests that have been degraded either because they're near disturbance events or because selective logging is taking place and the like, that the amount of carbon loss that's happening from forests through degradation may be exceeding that from deforestation. So now our current understanding of the net balance that's occurring between losses that happen through climate change, through deforestation, through degradation, and subsequent regrowth is very unclear. For example, disturbances from land use change account for something like about 15% of CO2 emissions, and existing forests account for something like about 30% of the current land carbon sink. 
We also know that natural regrowth could account for another about 25% uh, in terms of its ability to sequester carbon. But we really don't know well enough what these numbers are, where the sinks are, and the like. And so we have a lot of unknowns. And with all these unknowns, it makes it very difficult to predict future CO2 concentrations. And it makes it really difficult for us to act rationally as a society to implement policies that we can, we can try to use to slow down forest loss and slow down atmospheric CO2 accumulation. I didn't know that forest degradation had such a significant impact on carbon release or sequestration. I always thought clear cutting would have a much bigger impact, but what I hear you saying is that degradation plays a much larger role. Well, I'll give you a very good example. If you cut down a patch of forest and I ask you this question, okay, how far away from that edge would you expect to see any impact on ecosystem structure or functioning? from that edge, uh, 10 meters, 100 meters, a kilometer. Do you know that number? No, you don't know that number. It turns out though, if you look at recent evidence, it's much farther than you, than you would have expected. Maybe a kilometer, two kilometers in, something is happening to affect forest structure far away from where the disturbance has occurred. We're only now starting to catch up to that kind of quantification of the impacts of disturbance and degradation. And until we do that, how are we going to plan and how are we going to actually prevent some of these events from happening? What is the impact on ecosystem functioning and structure from what's going on in terms of climate change, in terms of disturbance, in terms of how individual species are responding, in terms of how habitats are changing and the like? Isn't that exciting? It's great. This is like an unknown frontier and we're just getting the tools today to be able to explore that. So it's a fantastic time to be in this arena uh, with some of the new technology that, we're, that I hope we're able to apply towards understanding these problems. Yes, it's just amazing. And you've been part of developing one of the most important technological innovations in studying forest carbon, JEDI. So tell us a bit of this, the history of JEDI and what made JEDI possible. Well, this is a bit of a long story, and maybe it's a kind of example as well as how one shouldn't give up because we've gone through a lot of hurdles. So going backwards in time in the early 90s, uh, colleagues at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, they put a kind of demonstration LIDAR instrument up on the space shuttle. It was a single beam of LIDAR data transecting, and... They said, look, we, can, we think we can get the tops of trees on the like. So that led us to propose a mission to NASA called the Vegetation Canopy LIDAR Mission. I was the PI of that mission, and we were the first selected mission of the ESSP program. Um, as we developed the mission, it was supposed to be a free-flying satellite. Um, the lasers, we couldn't quite get the lasers to keep from damaging themselves, and eventually that mission got canceled after about four years of pretty hard work, which was super deflating. We continued then to say, well, we have the ISAT-1 mission that was in space. We could work on some of that data, but we also pushed forward what we could do with aircraft LIDAR. And so we developed models and algorithms for how to use waveform LIDAR to get at ecosystem structure so that we could do carbon monitoring, so that we could do habitat monitoring. Then 
in the 2000s, another mission was proposed. This was called the Destiny mission. This was not proposed by myself, but it was a, a NASA mission, which was going to combine a synthetic aperture radar and a LIDAR. And we worked on the Destiny mission for about five years. And I remember really clearly being in a NASA review for another reason in 2010, getting an email saying NASA canceled Destiny. And so now we're talking 15 years from the time we started in, in about 1995 to 2010 and still not having an ecosystem LIDAR in space. Wow, that's such a long time to work on this dream and have it canceled again. So what did you do from there? We then looked at other alternatives and we said, well, maybe we can get a LIDAR mission that's optimized for ecosystem structure because neither ISAT nor ISAT-2 would optimize for vegetation structure. They're optimized for ice sheets. So we proposed again in 2013 to the ESSP program to put an instrument on the space station. But the one that was eventually selected was Cygnus. So now we failed three times. We failed with VCL, we failed with Destiny, we failed with Jedi One. So in 2014, I said, let's try one more time. Now you have to understand when you write one of these kinds of proposals, it's not like it's a five page proposal. You're talking about hundreds of pages. It's a huge, the hardest thing you'll ever do as a scientist is to write a proposal to get a space mission funded. It's also one of the most rewarding, but again, one of the most difficult. So we tried one more time and in 2015, we were selected. So that was the long history of how we got to this point. Then we built the mission and we launched it um, in December of 2018. Amazing. Such an incredible journey of perseverance. How is it possible, though, that you didn't just give up? I mean, what kept you motivated to make Jedi finally happen? You know, that's a very interesting question. I, I don't exactly know why we didn't give up. Um, it would have been very easy to give up. And I think because we knew that this was the right thing to do, and we knew that when we talked to the ecosystem community and we saw what their requirements were, those requirements hadn't changed for 20 years. Everyone was still waiting for an ecosystem LIDAR that had a high enough resolution in terms of its spatial resolution that had enough fidelity to be able to measure the densest canopies in the tropics. And I think we never lost sight of that and said, we could do this one more time. My family thought I was crazy, but you know, we kept doing it and we were finally successful. I think everyone just tells the person crazy until that person does it. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, you made it work and you made it happen. So, okay, you touched on this a bit, but what makes Jedi different from previous lighter instruments, particularly with respect to mapping forest ecosystems? Yeah, what we're going to compare it to then is only ISAT and ISAT 2. And ISAT really had technical troubles in space. So it had a very limited observational capability because they, they only operated it for very short periods of time because they were worried about the laser degrading. It also had a very large footprint, which was not good for trying to estimate canopy heights on slopes. Then we had ISAT-2, which was using photon counting methods. But with ISAT-2, the number of photons you get back per footprint over a vegetated surface is only about one to two. And so there's a big problem of detecting signal from noise photons. 
Jedi was conceived such that A, it had a lot more data than either one of those missions, B, it had a small enough footprint, and C, it was operating, unlike ISAT-2, in the near-infrared, so it had a high signal-to-noise ratio. So the combination of those three things, giving us good spatial coverage, being optimized for vegetation in terms of its footprint size, as well as uh, its wavelength, and the ability to give us accurate vertical observations within a 25-meter footprint, which is something that ISAT-2 can't do. You have to aggregate ISAT-2 a long track to try to build up enough photons so that you can get some kind of vertical structure. This is not ISAT-2 bashing. ISAT-2 is a remarkable instrument. But this is what we mean when we say that JEDI was optimized for ecosystem structure. It has a finer spatial resolution and has a much better vertical resolution as well in terms of what you can see of canopy leaves and branches within that 25 meter footprint. What has this optimized technology meant for studying forest carbon sequestration? We find out right after the break. Are you passionate about protecting our planet and tackling the challenges posed by climate change? Do you want to be a part of a remote sensing community that brings together the brightest minds in environmental science and engineering? Then you need to check out the Remote Sensing Environment Analysis and Climate Technologies Technical Committee or REACT-TC for short. Here on the REACT Technical Committee, we believe strongly that interdisciplinary collaboration is key to making a real difference in our world. That's why we bring together experts from various fields to exchange ideas, share knowledge, and advance the science that drives our understanding of the planet. Whether you're a scientist, engineer, or simply someone who cares deeply about the environment, the REACT Technical Committee of the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society is a place for you. Together, we can make a difference, one discovery at a time. Visit grss-ieee.org and select the REACT Technical Committee to learn more. Welcome back. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Ralph Dubaya, Professor of Geographical Sciences at the University of Maryland at College Park and Principal Investigator behind the successful and transformative mission known as JEDI. As you heard, JEDI, which stands for Global Ecosystem Dynamics Investigation, is a high-resolution laser instrument that was attached to the International Space Station starting in 2018. Throughout its mission between 2018 and 2023, JEDI contributed to detailed measurements of the 3D structure of Earth's surface, and in particular, four types of plant structure information was extracted surface topography, canopy height metrics, canopy cover metrics, and vertical structure metrics. All these metrics have contributed substantially to our understanding of how forests contribute to the carbon cycle. Let's learn how. How does JEDI enhance our knowledge of forest ecosystems when it comes to climate change? So the most important way to begin with is that JEDI has produced maps of above ground carbon. And so with the maps of above ground carbon, scientists can look at if a fire goes through an area, how much carbon was lost. We can also combine these JEDI data with data that we get on the fluxes of carbon, let's say from a mission like OCO3, so that we have a more complete picture of the carbon cycle. And then scientists now are going back through time and looking at the Landsat disturbance product and understanding how much regrowth has occurred in this 20 or 30 year period 
A second important way is through using JEDI data on canopy heights to initialize prognostic ecosystem models. Now, what a prognostic ecosystem model does, it takes the land surface and you can implement within this model climate change scenarios and land use change scenarios. And these models will tell you how the carbon will change on the land surface and how much carbon will be released or sequestered through time in a prognostic way. So we could look 50 years, 100 years into the future. The main limitation of using these models in the past is that they were using what we call potential vegetation because we didn't really know what the current carbon stocks were on the land surface. But when we initialize a model, for example, the model we use is from my colleague next door to me, George Hurt, the ecosystem demography model. Once we initialize the heights of the canopy into this model, it, it initializes an entire set of other things about the below ground and the above ground state of the ecosystem. And we can then run these models. And these models can be run globally. They could be run for small areas. And this gives us a much better idea of things such as, for example, the sequestration potential of the land surface. And so this is some of the ways that scientists now are using the information from JEDI to understand and to help validate other notions of how the current carbon stocks exist. And how is this knowledge of existing carbon stocks being used? Can you give an example? If you look at global climate treaty frameworks, countries voluntarily report their carbon stocks to that every year. We, we've done with JEDI is look for particular countries, well, for every country, and said, well, here is what we think your carbon stocks are. And that gets compared to what stocks the countries themselves are reporting. And in some cases, many countries have very poor uh, national forest inventory. So the JEDI data may be, may be a lot better. And in other cases, we're able to provide another look, another kind of validation on what these countries are reporting. In what ways is JEDI now informing the upcoming 2024 NISAR mission? So NISAR is an, a, really an incredible mission. It's a, a mission, a joint mission between the Indian Space Agency, ISRO, and NASA. It's being led out of uh, NASA Jet Propulsion Lab, and it consists of both an S-band and L-band SAR. And L-band has a good deal of sensitivity to forest structure. And the NISAR mission has multiple objectives. It's going to be used to look at solid earth and deformation. It's also going to be used to look at ice sheets. And it's also going to be used to look at ecosystem structure, in particular biomass of low biomass areas. So the requirements for NISAR are that it produces a biomass map at one hectare resolution globally for areas that have 100 megagrams per hectare biomass density or less. So JEDI can be used with NISAR in a variety of ways. One way it can be used is to push forward that limitation of 100 megagrams per hectare we can train new models using JEDI data and fusion with the data we get from NISAR to make predictions beyond 100 megagrams per hectare. That's perhaps one of the most important ways JEDI data could be used with NISAR. Secondly, because JEDI produces in 
millions of one hectare cells, basically a wall-to-wall estimate of biomass. We can use these one hectare biomass estimates from JEDI to create new calibration equations for NISAR if they're needed to try to uh, improve the accuracy of these equations. We can also use JEDI data to validate subsequent NISAR estimates. If you go back to what I had mentioned before about this mission that was a joint SAR-LIDAR mission called DESTINY, really what we have now with the combination of NISAR and JEDI is the DESTINY mission. And right now, JEDI is in hibernation, which we can talk about in a moment. But together, they fulfill this dream that we had of having the power of SAR, which has high spatial resolution, high temporal repeat coverages, and all-weather coverage, with what I like to call the beauty of LIDAR, which is the incredible accuracy that we get and this three-dimensional structure that we get from LIDAR. So together, uh, it creates a really powerful synergy. Hmm. And you mentioned that JEDI is in hibernation. Can you explain? Sure. So in... 2023, we were moved because a a U.S. Department of Defense mission was scheduled to take our spot. We were originally just going to be destroyed, but the scientific community weighed in and we had great conversations with NASA. And NASA worked very hard to try to find a solution to see if they could keep us going. And the solution that emerged was we were moved to a temporary storage location where we can't operate, but we have survival heater power. And we were moved earlier this year. The idea is to remain there for 12 to 18 months from now while the Department of Defense mission completes its primary objectives. Once it completes its objectives, that mission will go move to where Jedi is in storage until it can be destroyed, and Jedi will go back to where it was. Presuming that it is operational, then Jedi will continue to be on board at least through 2026. At that time, it'll go through another NASA review, and if it's still working and providing great data, then we have every reason to hope, as long as there's finances available, that Jedi will be renewed again and go at that point through the entire life of the ISS, which would go through 2030. So that's where we are now with JEDI. So one way to look at this is we've JEDI completed its first ethic of observations almost over a four-year period, which is remarkable since it was only going to be operational for a year. And now we're planning to come back for its second epic of observations, which is exciting. Why do you think it is important to continue to use JEDI? What do you hope to learn through the 2024 extension? What we hope to learn is we'll be able to build up this time series of change. We'll be able to observe during this first epoch how countries who are participating in these global treaty climate warming treaty frameworks, what the impacts have been of their actions that they've taken. This is something that's related to what's called the global stock take which is essentially taking stock of how well have the countries of the planet implemented these uh, policies that were supposed to limit CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. So we'll be able to look at what happened in this first epoch from the early 20s. As we now start going forward in time, we'll be able to observe places that were disturbed in that first four years 
we'll be able to observe how much carbon is accumulating in these forests. And so we'll be able to get a much better handle on the net impact of deforestation and subsequent regrowth through time. We'll also be collecting data at the same time the NICER mission is collecting data. At the same time, the European Space Agency biomass mission is collecting data. And the biomass mission has a plan to use JEDI data to help calibrate some of what they're doing. And so we're going to have this incredible time series starting in 2019 and maybe going through a whole decade of observations of ecosystem structural changes in height and biomass and the accumulation of loss in biomass at a decadal time scale. That's something that we've never had before and will give us a, a quantitative comprehension and understanding of what the impacts of land use change and climate change are having. So JEDI, alongside NISAR and other missions, will really help us see how effective policies and practices are for forest protection and carbon sequestration, right? I believe that is definitely the case, yes. So beyond JEDI and NISAR, what are the next steps or the next big questions for understanding forest ecosystems and climate change? Well, I think one of the areas we haven't touched on yet has to do with both habitat quality and ecosystem functioning. Ecosystems have structural diversity. This is how the leaves and branches are arranged. You have big trees over small trees and the like. And then they also have functional diversity. Functional diversity refers to really the variety of ecological functions and processes that are performed by different species within an ecosystem. And within the context of forested ecosystems, specifically functional diversity really focuses on understanding the ranges and the roles and interactions among various plant and animal species that, let's say, contribute to the overall functioning and stability of the forest. And so what do, what do I mean by functions? I mean things like nutrient cycling. We've already mentioned carbon sequestration, seed dispersal, pollination, how they regulate pests. All those are functional traits of ecosystems. And each particular species in a forest has its own unique characteristics and traits and behaviors, and that together they all perform specific functions. And so what you have now is this whole set of functional diversity. And part of that functional diversity is related to the structural diversity of the forest. And that's exactly what JEDI measures is that structural diversity. And so what LIDAR is giving us is this height and structure. It's telling us about variations in light competition. It's telling us about habitat preferences. It's giving us leaf area index vertically. And we know that when we have an increase in leaf area index, we have greater functional diversity. We have more leaves. We have more varied leaves of different sizes. We're getting canopy gaps from JEDI. That in turn affects recruitment and tree generation. Okay, put all this together. We say, wow, we got this window into all of this. Why is this important? It's important because of the perturbations that we're applying to ecosystems through climate warming that's creating stressors on it, through insects that are creating stressors on it, through land use change that is creating stressors. And we talked earlier about the fact that when we have edges and disturbances, those are felt inland into the forest. So we're trying to get this much more complete picture of the structure and the function and the species composition of ecosystems. 
And we need to be able to understand that because we may be pushing some of these ecosystems towards tipping points after which we can no longer recover. And we need to understand that to enable us to develop better conceptual models that will lead then to our ability to devise rational policy strategies to help us combat some of these changes. I know that was very long-winded, but I'm really passionate about this, and I think this is the way it needs to go. I mean, I feel your passion, and that's so exciting because there's still a lot to learn. So thinking back to your determination in making JEDI possible after all the challenges, what would be your message to other geoscientists and remote sensing scientists who are hoping to do meaningful work on climate change? Well, it's I will have a couple of points about that. First, you should always follow your scientific passion without regard to, I think, at the very moment, how relevant you think it may or may not be to problems that we're facing. The reason that's important is because we just don't know how one of our listeners that's sitting there is working on, let's say, machine learning with quantum computing and this and that kind of uh, new technology. We don't really know yet how that is going to manifest into the future. And I know from my own work, some of the models that I created looking at solar radiation and topographic variability took two decades before people finally started implementing some of these things. So that's one thing is to is to first pursue what you think is interesting. Secondly, you do need to understand that what we're doing is trying to keep the planet sustainable so that everyone can have a good life. That's kind of what's underpinning science. And you can't be deterred if you fail at first. I think that's one of the main messages that I would have in my kind of life arc in my career is that continue to follow what you think is the correct path. And eventually you will get there if you keep working at it. You know, when I was an undergrad, I don't, I'm not proud of this, but when I was an undergrad, I started out as a physics major. And physics and astronomy major. And I had a very romantic idea of what astronomy was. This was at UC Berkeley. And it got you, wow, this was way harder than I thought it was. So after three pretty hellish years, and I hadn't even looked through a telescope, and I used to build telescopes when I was a kid, I became very disillusioned with the whole thing. And I said, you know what, I'm not, this maybe it's not what I'm quite cut out for. So I thought back, what else did I really like doing as a kid? I loved music, I loved astronomy, but I also loved the natural environment, that it became a geography major. And at that time, remote sensing was still kind of starting out. And I, But I really loved maps and I loved remote sensing. I said, let me go pursue this as a, let me go look at this. You just don't know where any of this leads. And so, again, you can persevere and eventually you hopefully can realize the things that you were hoping to realize. It seems like your life has been all about determination and following your passion. And I love that. I mean, we are both on the same boat. I was a applied physics graduate in my undergraduate, and I worked with an astrophysicist after, and then I was lost. <laughs> and I figured out why not study the Earth? It seems also as interesting and mysterious as space. So yeah, I, here I yeah, am. That, that's right. And you know what's what's great is that I looked up to NASA's so much as a as a kid wanting to do astronomy and oh I oh I can't do that and yet my entire career then 
has been working with NASA. And so it's, it's been very kind of rewarding in that sense that it kind of comes full circle. And what's interesting is that when you look at, for example, many of the radar scientists and the like that we interact with at JPL and elsewhere, they were physics majors and they eventually used their brilliant knowledge of physics to push forward radar remote sensing. And so I really look up to that. And, you know, what a benefit to all of us that they actually are doing this. So Very true. So turning back to climate change, what's one concrete action you think listeners could tackle in their own lives to support forest carbon capture? Well, the, the most and easiest way to do this is go plant trees where you live. That's one of the things that I would <clears throat> highly recommend. And I would also work with the local localities of where you live towards encouraging local municipalities to have plans to plant trees and to preserve the canopy that they have. And to also recognize that there's a kind of inequity that's taken place, at least in the United States, about where tree canopies are relative to socioeconomic status and the like as well. And so by taking that action of preserving what forests you live nearby now and planting more, I think that is one of the most concrete things one can do is that, of course, you can drive lasting an electric car and the like, but there's benefits from preserving and maintaining trees that are unmatched. And the one place I'd most ever want to be is inside a forest. And I don't think we can diminish how important it is for everyone to be near a forest and to have them. So that's what I would really encourage everyone to try to do. I think that's a concrete action that we can all take and that we actually should take. Well, that's all for this episode of Down to Earth. Want to learn more about Dr. Ralph Dubaya and his work with Jedi? If you go to our Jedi website, which is jedi.umd.edu, this is where you could learn everything about Jedi. We also have a Twitter feed, which is Jedi Knights. We have some fascinating episodes in store this season, so don't forget to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow and like our sponsors at IEEE underscore GRSS on Twitter and Instagram and IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing on Facebook and LinkedIn. This episode was produced by Nicole Bedford from Nicole Bedford Films with help from me, Stephanie Tumampos. Graphics and design by Mylene Briggs of Kila Media. And a special thanks to Irina Hansek of ETH Zurich and the German Aerospace Center for her support. I'm Stephanie Tumampos and you've been listening to Down to Earth.